Welcome to our newest episode of the Lebanese Physicians uh, Podcast. And today we will be talking about alternative pathways in medicine. And our guest today is Dr. Cesar Yesbik, who graduated from the American University of Beirut uh, Medical School in 2017, much younger than I am, and uh, subsequently did not take the pathway of clinical care and in fact joined the McKinsey and Associates uh, in Dubai initially, then moved to New York with them in 2020 and subsequently joined uh, CVS uh, recently, which you will tell us more about in a bit. And we have also Dr. Muhammad Ali Jardali, who everybody knows, uh, co-hosting the episode uh, with me today. So, uh, Cesar, can you just tell us a bit about what you've done at uh, McKinsey and Associates and then uh, what you're doing now at CVS? Yeah, sure thing. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be part of this uh, and to chat with both of you. Uh, when I first joined McKinsey, I guess my idea was to really, you know, sample the healthcare space, make sure that I touch not only on the care delivery aspect, but on all of the other facets of it. And so over my past five years at McKinsey, I've done, I guess, a broad set of topics, but mainly focusing on provider transformation and service line configuration. So large chains of hospitals, helping them think about, you know, how to allocate their bed capacity, how to build like a hub and spoke model but also how to think about their clinical productivity, how to be- get the best of their clinics, their ORs, et cetera. A bit of the other work that I did was around the regulatory and policy aspect. And so helping governments think about how to structure their national payer programs, similar to the demand system in Lebanon. How can you have a national insurance program that can help cover your population? Uh, I also did a bit of MA you know, post-merger integration, asset divestiture within the North America sphere, focusing on pharma companies. Uh, And then finally, for the past one to two years, really focusing on, I guess, uh, the advanced analytics aspect in healthcare. And so with two hats on, one was around COVID response. And so how can we build the infrastructure to deliver tests and then monitor the outcome of of testing on the populations, but also thinking about the vertical applications of our advanced analytics, artificial intelligence, and machine learning within the life science and healthcare space, and how we can apply it to kind of improve the way care is being delivered, being done, but also is being researched and developed. So that's a bit of kind of the walk of life that I've had so far. And then at CVS Health, most recently, I've really focused on the care delivery aspect. So really thinking about how can you design a network of primary care providers, of hospitals, of urgent care centers, how can you really kind of funnel patients through that system and give them the best care with the best outcomes that guarantees the best quality of life at the most efficient and effective use of resources level. So that's a bit of the overview. Very fascinating work. I think a lot of our listeners would be interested to know how you got into consulting to begin with after medical and any advice you would have for anyone who wants to pursue a career in consulting. Yeah, definitely. Well, I'll start by saying when I started getting interested in consulting, it wasn't really in the, I guess, in the conscious of everyone in, in Lebanon and the community. It was still kind of the early days of uh, 2012, 2013, 2014. I had a lot of friends in engineering. And so Consulting at that point was a very engineering-focused recruiting effort from AUB. Since then, I will say that it's become much more diversified. And so I can list, you know, four or five, maybe even more positions that have made that transition. Uh, And the way I heard about it was through my friends kind of really getting into the space and getting to know it and working into it. And I discovered that 
basically it was something that resonated a lot with my interests. And so as I joined medicine and joined AUB, uh, the Faculty of Medicine and studied there, I started kind of tailoring my experiences, my research, uh, the kind of extracurricular aspects I worked on in order to kind of really be able to join that space and started networking a bit more with people that had joined and previously done that work and kind of uh, being part of that sphere. So it comes, I guess, as marrying both the proactive and the reactive aspects. Our, our you know, AUB as, as a university is very good at shaping and offering these experiences. And then it's about kind of you really figuring out whether this is something that aligns with what you want to do, and then really kind of pushing towards that, developing your experiences, uh, socializing, networking, and getting to know the, the community. Right. And, and so, so did, so I guess, we all like go, a lot of us before, I think now things are changing, but a lot of us when you used to finish AB medical school, you would all think about going into residency, fellowship, clinical care. Uh, but now, now I think more and more people are going into consulting. So I think consulting would give you probably a different view of medicine. So how did consulting with McKinsey, uh, both in uh, the MENA region and in North America, shape your view of, of healthcare? Yeah, it's a very interesting question. I feel like both, you know, kind of clinical care and healthcare consulting both have layers of complexity. I guess it's a different type of complexity. If you think about it, you know, as a physician, you appreciate the complexity of patient care, you know, the, the conditions, the, the care pathways you could explore, the ways you could treat patients. In consulting, we appreciate the complexity of the healthcare system, which is all of the things that orbit the provider to allow them to deliver better care. And so you start realizing, you know, the complexities of having an insurance system, how to predict what the premiums might be, what the medical loss ratio is, what the costs could be, and how can you kind of institute the right things. The complexity of government oversight over quality of care, delivery of care, capacity, and all of these aspects. And then the complexity of the pharma space, right? The pharma and medical devices space of how they can best design and deploy tools that can be used effectively in, in patient care and deliver the best outcomes. And so you get to kind of explore that entire value chain rather than just being focused on the daily work you do with the hospitals and the clinical guidelines that guide that work. Very, very interesting uh, insight. And I don't know if you want to talk about how it's like working in the consulting field. A lot of people maybe have a lot of like misconceptions about uh, any words of wisdom. Yeah, definitely. So I guess if you look at consulting, the work practically and, and you know, uh, on a daily basis, you essentially have like a very clear structure. You have the senior partners which own the relationship with the clients. They are the client counselors. They have the high level conversations that steer the kind of work we end up doing. And so they'll have a sense of the macro trends in the industry, right? Where are we going? Are we going towards fee-for-service payments, towards value-based care? Are we going to a more socialized healthcare system, a more privatized one? Uh, are we focusing more on a primary care kind of gatekeeper for the system or more specialist care? And so with that, they will be able to kind of lead conversations with uh, high-level clients, really figuring out what their long-term strategy is. And then from that, a lot of our work kind of starts off. Then you will have the partner and the engagement managers, which are owning the client relationship on a project level, uh, helping them, you know, kind of uh, think about the main challenges they have and kind of working every day with them, with the clients to, to deliver that, that impact. And then within that, you have the teams that are actually doing a lot of the work. And the work is very interesting. I would say it's 
it, it's split fairly equally across three buckets. One is hypothesis is analytics. And so figuring out what is the hypothesis you want to prove, where are the analyses and the kind of work that you need to put down in order to deliver this, right? And so it's the thinking part. The second one is the client engagement part, which is how can you get the client to understand what you're pitching, to align with it, and to, to kind of adopt that strategy? And then how can you take them on that journey to make it happen? And then the third aspect is actually doing the, the, the legwork to prove your hypotheses, to, to deploy the analyses and kind of get the outcomes that you're looking for. There sometimes is a fourth bucket, which is the operational support. And so a lot of times, you know, consulting is it's called management consulting, but it has strategy and operations. Strategy is the thinking about what is the right solution. Operations is how do we make it happen? And so that fourth bucket of kind of operations is also one where you get to spend quite a bit of time on and if you would like can actually just fully dedicate your capacity to and so you know on a daily basis you would be working at the client side you would be engaging with the c-levels and the vps and the svps on a weekly basis running the thinking the the thesis uh, and then getting their insights into who to best engage within the organization uh, and then you know on a daily basis uh, basically working with the, the, I guess, one level lower, so the directors and senior directors, and, you know, kind of working together hand in hand to deliver that perspective and that vision to the, to the management team. So, so, so consulting, when it happens, you consult, your clients are either, I guess, healthcare systems, which could be large, medium-sized, or small, or it could be like states, right? Like could be different states or different countries, I guess, that you would consult for. Yeah. Definitely, and, and so I, yeah, I, I guess if you if you had if you had to bucket the types of clients within the healthcare space, well, there's two big buckets. Number one is PMP, which is pharma and medical products, and the other one is HSS, which is health systems and services. Within PMP, you have the pharma companies and the medical product companies that are designing these things. We'll keep that on the side because it's a bit less relevant to kind of the physician background. Now on the HSS side, you have three main stakeholders. Number one are the providers. And so these are the hospitals themselves. Number two are the payers, which are the insurance companies. And number three are the regulators. Now the regulators almost always are public sector entities. On the provider and on the payer front, there are two flavors to that. One flavor is the, I guess, Western Europe slash Middle East model, where a lot of these are government payers or government hospitals. And so it's a bit of a public sector lens to it. The alternative is having the North America model, which is much more focused on the US and the private providers and the private payers. This could be your United, your Aetna, your Cigna for the payer front. And then for the provider front, it's, you know, your Harvard and Partners Health System, it's your Dukes, it's kind of all of the, the, the private hospitals that deliver that care. And so usually you would select to specialize in one of these as you mature more in the consulting field. This was, I think, very helpful to understand like the framework and you gave us a lot of like details and overview about work uh, as a consultant. I don't know if this would be a good time maybe to change the direction of the conversation and talk about maybe your new role with CVS and what that's been like. Yeah, definitely. Well, I, at first, I, I just kind of introspect a bit. I guess the consulting world is a, is a, is a different beast than the corporate world. 
and let me maybe explain a bit what I mean. Consulting by nature is an advisory role where you, your final outcome is often recommendations, recommendations that the client instates. You recommend them, you don't necessarily own the delivery of these recommendations. Now, obviously the nature of the industry is changing quite a bit. And so we have a lot of situations now where we actually take part in deploying and operationalizing these solutions. But that being said, it's the client's choice to adopt our recommendations. When you shift into the corporate space or world, it's much more of executive ownership rather than recommendation. And so suddenly you are the final accountable party to make things happen, right? You can have several inflows of information to guide your decision. No, Ahmad, you're either on the track to become partner or not, but inside that they have to like pivot. Is this I guess we were talking a bit about the transition to the corporate kind of setting and, and the work with CDS Health. And so I guess w within the work that I do right now, I'm focused a lot on uh, care delivery. And what, what this means is maybe I'll give like a bit of an overview, but CDS Health is the largest pharmacy uh, chain in, in the US. They also have the retail segment within that. And so you step into a CDS Health pharmacy, you have the pharmacy, you have the retail shop, but you know, recently that offering has expanded significantly. So over the past 10 years, CVS Health has acquired Aetna, which is one of the largest insurance companies in, in the US. It covers 24 million lives between Medicare Advantage, uh, fully insured, and then, you know, kind of self-insured. Uh, and they've also gone into the provider world, and so care delivery. So they have Minute Clinic, which is, you know, kind of uh, clinics that are embedded within the CVS Health uh, uh, stores. They have health hubs, which are kind of holistic centers that deliver care. And more recently, uh, the company is in the process of acquiring a company called Signify Health, which does uh, home care and, and home visits for patients. And so primary care, essentially. A primary care, but in a distributed setting. And so not at the, at the physician's office, but more at the patient's home. And so they can do primary care, but they also can do kind of chronic uh, care management, uh, you know, condition support for highly complex patients, maybe that have severed comorbidities with heart failure, et cetera. And so what we're seeing in the, in, in, in the U.S. market is a, is a push for vertical integration in the healthcare system. You see Amazon doing it with, you know, the Walgreens partnership and with some of the, the acquisitions they're doing. You see United doing the same. And so that's kind of the trend. And so I've stepped into my role at CDS Health to really focus on how can we scale a provider and care delivery footprint for this company. And so one, what are the kinds of care provision that we want to be involved in? What are the kinds of services we want to offer? The kinds of patients we want to focus on? Two, what is the geographic and strategic footprint? Where, how many, how often, uh, these kinds of questions. And then three, how can we monitor and deliver that care to, I guess, achieve kind of three main things. The longest life with the highest quality at the most efficient use of resources. And so on a day-to-day, -day, what I do is I have a data science team that focuses on root cause analyses and exploratory analyses. We, we focus a lot on kind of shaping the strategy of the company in that, in that care delivery aspect, thinking what are the opportunities based on a breadth and depth of data that we have access to, whether it's EMR data, claims data, insurance data, all of that. And then once we have that, we design a specific set of initiatives and interventions and approaches 
to, to deploy across the organization, both for our patients, but also internally. We oversee, you know, the marketing design, the operations, operational deployment, and then the feedback of that delivery and what the response from the market is, from the patients on the outcomes, et cetera. And so to give like a very concrete example, you might realize that you have, you know, 10,000 patients, for example, that are on a contraindicated medication for certain condition they have, you would work with a behavior change team to design a targeted message to these people and to their physicians being like, look, perhaps that medication is not the right fit for you. You should have a conversation with your doctor. Then you would six months later after that run a new analysis on the same number of patients, realize what percent of them have been switched off that medication. And so be able to assess the impact of what you've done. This is one very small example. We have ones touching millions of people and ones touching 100 people basically. And so that's a bit of a flavor of, of the work we've been doing so far. Yeah, so basically CBS is, is trying to get into the primary care and, and provide- They already are. Right, they are, but, but they're getting into the provider model of care, which they're starting to do, uh, in addition maybe to the uh, regulatory world where, where you uh, monitor situations and you try to uh, adjust uh, things based on uh, the situations that are being monitored, such as what you said, like medications, making sure patients are taking the right medicines, looking at drug-drug interactions, uh, all this other stuff to try to improve uh, the healthcare model. So, and I think, and I think it's not only CVS; a lot of other uh, companies are trying to get into the field. Amazon was trying to get into that, but I think we've I've heard that they scaled back uh, recently, uh, probably because of the task at hand. So my, my, my question for you is, where, where do you see, I guess, healthcare of the future uh, in North America heading, and maybe maybe in the rest of the world too? Uh, do you see it as staying uh, the same way it is right now, where patients come to clinics or come to a hospital, get admitted, get their care, or do you see other providers of care that are gonna arise as, as things move forward? Yeah, I think it's a really good question, because I think, we're, we're seeing a huge transformation across the three main verticals of, of healthcare. And so on, on a high level, from a kind of payer standpoint, from an insurance standpoint, whether it's government insurance or private insurance, there's a big push to transition away from fee-for-service, which is you do one x-ray, I pay you for an x-ray, into uh, managed care or value-based uh, arrangements, where instead of saying, I am paying you for the services you are providing, it says it's, it's a bit more of a capitation model. And so I'm paying you per life that you are insuring. And so for that one year, based on the complexity of the care that we would expect this patient to have, this is what we would pay you. And then we trust you to kind of help the patient steer themselves throughout that health journey and, and, and take better care of themselves. So that's kind of one huge trend that we're seeing. The second one on the regulatory standpoint is, uh, is a big emphasis on the flow of data, the interoperability and the kind of the healthcare IT uh, integration and, and, and the data ownership of patient information. And so a big focus on the regulatory aspect there, you know, who's empowered in that relationship? How can we ensure that the flow of information doesn't stop if I suddenly change doctors or I change insurance companies? How can I provide that continuity? And then on the provider front, I think we're seeing a bit of a, like a, a health waterfall, I would say. The thinking is a bit 
around how can I deliver the best care in the lowest risk setting at the lowest cost setting. And so starting from the patient's phone, from their IoT devices, right, their Apple Watch, all of these things, how can I preempt, pre-diagnose, predict what conditions could happen? Then the second layer being the empowerment of primary care physicians and family physicians in being kind of the gatekeepers of the health system. And so being the direct contact with the patient, making sure that they have access to that patient, whether it's at home or in their office, and how can we kind of mitigate the patient having to go to the hospital? How can we manage their conditions, not only therapeutically, but through lifestyle changes, through advice, through kind of steering their journey in the right direction? Then we are seeing kind of that being the main funnel. And then after that, having kind of the urgent care, ER, and inpatient, but mainly hoping to have a bit of like a, an ever-reducing trickle of people so that instead of most of the care being delivered in the hospital setting, the way we see it right now, actually 90% of the care getting delivered outside a hospital setting to minimize the risk, the cost to the patients themselves, and then only having inpatient hospitalizations be there for warranted situations, or, you know, kind of if all else fails and this is highly complex care, having to be in the hospital. So I guess this is kind of the big transition we're seeing in the provider space. And the way all of these things marry each other is you're suddenly from a regulatory standpoint, it's very complex because you have so many data points you need to, to, to link together and you need to protect patients uh, around. But from the payer and the provider standpoint, it's very aligned because the player is suddenly shifting from just paying for the care to being paid for the life itself, which aligns with the lowest cost of uh, delivering the care by having the patient stay out of the hospital, you know, uh, getting the care from home or getting it at their primary care physician and, you know, kind of reducing the number of times they have to go to these high risk, uh, high cost settings. So those are a bit of the trends that are playing out. Now, that being said, COVID has been a huge influence in this. And I would say it's been in, in two ways. I think during COVID, everyone thought that we would see a mass acceleration in the adoption of digital health and, and, and remote health. And that led to like a very big hype in private equity investment, venture capital investment in these companies, and some very overinflated valuations. Not that these companies don't have merit and potential, but it was a bit putting the cart before the horse. And now what we're seeing is in, in you know, the kind of stock market, a real reckoning for these companies with a lot of the valuations being down 70 and 80% uh, over the past year because of a lot of factors, one of the main ones, realizing that despite this trend being core to the next two decades, it actually wasn't as accelerated by COVID as we thought it would be. And when things reopened, we saw a clear preference for patients wanting to see their physician in person, for example, versus understanding the value of a virtual visit. And so that's something that has, I guess, been a challenge in the transition to that model so far. This has been very fascinating, and as a practicing a family physician, uh, a lot of it has been validating to a lot of like our bread and butter and what we preach about. It's not just about longevity and lifespan; it's also about the health span uh, and the best way to reach that. And I think 
uh, a lot of people who go through medical training, most of medical training is in the hospital. And what you said about yeah. most care delivery happening outside the hospital, we talk about the hospital and how we can reach that. And I think uh, medicine has been very slow compared to other fields in terms of digitalization and adopting a lot of technologies. We still use fax machines. We still use CDs. Well, yeah, Muhammad, I think it resonates a lot around what you're saying on the medical education and how a large majority of it is still, uh, you know, happening in tertiary and quaternary settings rather where, you know, in, in the primary and secondary setting, which is much more uh, disseminated, uh, you know, across kind of various settings rather than the hospital itself. Uh, I think that resonates a lot. And it's, it's, it's a big question for the medical curriculum around how can you adapt, you know, the physicians of the future to the health system of the future. And I'll be the first to tell you, uh, I mean, all of us here are, are, are doctors, but, uh, you know, more realistically, the doctors as stakeholders are very tough to deal with because there's a certain level of expertise and institutional knowledge that comes with being a practicing physician. And so it sometimes is challenging to spin the story in a way where you can highlight the value that external advisors can bring even to the experts that are delivering the care. And that's a bit challenging to navigate sometimes, which is why you feel like changes, whether it's around digitization, governance, or the way care is delivered are pretty hard to implement in the healthcare system, because in, in you know, for various reasons, but in, in one factor, because of the willingness to adopt uh, for physicians. I, I completely agree. I think we can do an entire episode about the future of yeah. healthcare and medical education. And before uh, becoming an MD, I was actually a biomedical engineer. So I have a little bit of experience and that part of uh, work and, and innovation. And I was completely shocked when I started my medical career at how rigid things are. And I think a, a lot of damage happens during medical education to doctors in training and uh, the way they end up being molded. I think a lot of it is due to medical education and then residency and fellowship. Uh, but that's that's the top for, for another time. <laughs> yeah. Well, what I will just say is, I guess, I agree. I wouldn't call it damage. I think it's 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 a lot of. It comes from a very right spot, which is the mission that drives medicine. And actually, I I don't know, Muhammad, if you if you've seen that, but uh, uh, I I at least having studied at AUB, I saw how significantly the medical curriculum was, was modernized and, and adapted. Uh, I was one of the first years uh, to study on the new curriculum. And you could see how the system appreciated that physicians can on, cannot only be care providers anymore, but they need to be multifaceted, right? And so from the inclusion of uh, classes around ethics, around uh, you know, biostatistics, epidemiology, but also just health system structuring, around courses, adding courses around the pharma development process, you know, phase one, phase two, phase three trials, an overview of the FDA approval process. And so really showing physicians that even though you are the soldier on the ground delivering the care itself, 
there's a whole supply chain and command chain behind you that's enabling you to do that. And so I guess it might not be evolving as quickly as we would like, but things rarely do in such a regulated and high stakes industry. But I do see a lot of leading indicators that show that the medical education space is catching on to these kind of new trends in, in the broader healthcare ecosystem. Right, and I think, I think over, the past, think over the past years, there's been like a significant acceleration of, of this trend uh, over the past maybe 10 years, I would say. Uh, but even you see like older physicians now are all saying, this is not the way we used to practice. Uh, a lot of them have retired or are on, in the process of retiring because they just say this is a lot of change that we cannot absorb ourselves. And I think there is pretty fast changes uh, here in the US and even I think in the MENA region right now in the delivery of healthcare. Because at the end of the day, I think it's not sustainable the way it used to be. And uh, managed care is probably the way to go uh, for the future uh, using AI and, and, and IT technologies. Yeah. But I think like since the Flexner report 100 years ago, there hasn't been like major reform in the way we do medical education. We still teach the Krebs cycle, I don't know, like 10 times. I mean, do you really need to learn it more than one time? Is there any point in memorizing the Krebs cycle? You know, like I have a personal vendetta against the Krebs cycle and I can talk on and on and on about how useless it is to learn it times through pre-med and medical education and biochemistry and so many times which you could be learning coding uh, artificial intelligence and so many other skills that would be uh, more uh, useful to practice medicine in the 21st century i agree towards the push in, in terms of introducing ethics and uh, clinical skills and all the humanitarian aspects of it but i think the traditional model of medicine is very focused on anatomy, physiology, pharmacology, which were cool 100 years ago. And it was all we knew. But in the 21st century, I think medicine is much more diversified and uh, we need to allow that. Obviously, it's, it's very complicated. There's a lot of stakeholders, but I think we still provide medicine the same way we used to do 50 years ago. The hospitals haven't changed that much. Clinics haven't changed that much. And the medical school curriculum, believe it or not, hasn't changed that much uh, compared if you want to compare fields. But uh, I can go on and on. I don't think that's the topic of today's <laughs> talk. I, I think that's the first time the Krebs cycle has come to my conscious in, in the past <laughs> decade. <laughs> like from Med 1, when we ended with it, <laughs> and I put it behind me. <laughs> PTSD. <laughs> Cesar, thank you. Thank you for highlighting to us some of the alternative pathways for healthcare delivery. And not I wouldn't call them alternative, even some of the pathways that are happening for doctors behind the scenes. Complementary. Complementary pathways that are happening yeah. for doctors behind the scenes. Uh, and I think hopefully we touched on the future of healthcare, the future of managed care with you. And uh, uh, thank you, Hamad Ali, for co-hosting the episode. Of course, it's my pleasure. And thank you both for, for facilitating this. I think it's, it's just a great conversation. It's good to highlight for everyone that's passionate about, you know, going into the medical practice and, and, and having a life in, in medical care that, you know, there are many ways to, to deliver impact to people, whether you're doing the thing yourself or enabling others to get it done. The mission remains the same. And so, you know, a lot of times, I guess, we all come from a relatively Middle Eastern society with 
uh, expectations of conforming to the usual norm. Uh, and what I would say is we're getting to a, a societal moment where people are encouraged to experiment more and that should be encouraged, not discouraged, because we need profiles that have a medical background everywhere. And so, you know, I'm, 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 I'm glad we had this conversation and I look forward to, I guess, seeing even more diverse backgrounds going into medicine and more diverse paths going out of it. Right. I think this was very encouraging and uplifting to a lot of our listeners, a lot of students who feel stuck and feel that uh, they're path out of it and they need to uh, continue through residency and a traditional uh, medical career. I think this has been inspiring to a lot of people listening to know there's another way and there's a lot you can do with a medical degree. If you're not happy with what you're doing, uh, talk to other people who have branched up and uh, see, see what opportunities are there for you. And maybe one final thought here is I, I would think exploring alternate paths, whether in business and finance and, you know, regulation, whatever it is for physicians should not come from a place of fear or from a place of not enjoying where they are right now. I would hope that it comes from a passion for helping make the system better from a, a core interest in the other facets of healthcare and not from, I'm not really enjoying my residency. What else can I do? but more of I really want other doctors to enjoy delivering their care and do it in the best way possible. And how can I be part of that journey? Right, exactly. Because I think once you get involved in some of these alternate pathways, you learn more about what you're doing and it helps actually shape your better care for your patients. And the last thing I would say is, I have actually quite a few friends that have done this for a couple of years instead of doing research, which is a very common thing you do after finishing medicine and before residency, and then have actually gone back to clinical practice. And so, you know, sometimes exploring these non-conventional paths is not like a, is not necessarily putting clinical practice on the side. It's more potentially taking a hiatus to explore what the system has to offer before feeling empowered, to kind of make your residency decision, which a lot of people I know are a bit hesitant about because they're not sure what they want to commit their entire life to. Yep. Interesting conversation. Good advice. Good advice. Good advice. Interesting conversation. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Have a great day.